0: Hey, everybody, (laughs) welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. And boy, I have probably not been as excited ever as I am about this one because Philip Lanier has become a very good friend. I've gotten to know his story over the last four years and walking beside him as he's been uh, building his company. And his story is just fascinating. So you are in for a massive treat today. So Philip, as we start the Anything But Typical podcast, it's always with a heartbeat question. And here's the scenario. You and your wife, Tracy, the T of P and TL, Philip and Tracy Lanier, if you couldn't figure that out. You and Tracy are on your way to a boat somewhere, and you're walking down a dock. Somebody sees you, and they go, hey, that is Philip Lanier, and they start talking about you. But they don't realize that, you know, because the sound waves are bouncing off the water, you can hear every word that they're saying about you. What would you want somebody to say about you, Philip?
1: I would uh, want them to say that that guy, he may not be the smartest, but he has a tenacious work appetite and he, he cares about people more than he cares about uh, any kind of anything else. I, I just, I care more about people being able to get a fair shake throughout all the different levels of a company um, and that, that's, that's really what I care about people People just knowing that there's great people out there. You
2: embody that, Philip. That is exactly what I've experienced with you. So for those who do not know Philip, Philip was the, the owner and president of PNTL for over 19 years. And one of the things we're going to get into is he recently had an exit. So we're going to talk a little bit about the dynamics about that. But way before we get there, Philip, I want us to go back to the beginning, right? So rewind 19 years, see how sharp your memory is. Talk to us a little bit about what you were doing prior to PNTL.
1: Prior to PNTL, I had worked at a moving company carrying boxes, Um, worked a whole variety of jobs, nothing very long, two, three months, six months at a time. Um, But immediately before PNTL, I I worked at an engineering firm testing the foundations bearing capacity uh, of soils for uh, a home builder called Ryland Homes, which they've been merged out about three times now. Um, so I, I te- and I got to meet a lot of really cool superintendents out on those job sites, and that's that's basically how I learned how to how the construction game works.
2: So. Philip, talk to us a little bit about why, why pursue owning your own company, right? What took you from bouncing around from job to job for a few months here or there to saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start my own business and be my own boss?
1: My story is a little less sexy than, 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 than a lot. I didn't really realize that I was starting a business when I started a business. I went from a $12.80 an hour job at the engineering firm to when in the recession of 03 and Tracy and I were so poor, we didn't even know what a recession was. You know, I, uh, our hours, my hours dropped to like 15 hours a week, you know, um, working, testing the bearing capacity of the houses. And one of the superintendents, I called him and I said, man, I can't make it. I can't even make my house payment. And he says, well, why don't you come to our job site and I will let you pick up trash around the houses. And uh, I didn't realize that I was actually starting a business when that happened. It, it, uh, I just kind of was going to a different hourly job in my mind, um, even though I had to have workers comp and general liability. And it, I had no idea that I was starting a business. I actually didn't realize I had started a business until probably 2006 or seven. I, I never stepped back to look at it, actually.
2: So what what triggered what triggered that to all of a sudden you're like oh I I'm running a company here and not just having some some job what what was it that triggered in your mind
1: A high school buddy came over to my house one day and and he's like what are these two trucks and I'm like well these are the two trucks we use to go you know install fences with and and pick up trash and things he's like you have two trucks and I I went, that night I was laying in bed and I thought, I have two trucks. I had never really actually thought about it before that.
2: <laughs> never occurred. Oh, man. And did you have any entrepreneurial exposure prior, grown up, family, friends, relatives, anything like that? Or was this a completely foreign endeavor for you? It was pretty
1: foreign to me. I mean, um, very foreign to me, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have any at all. I know that in my first year, I was started transitioning from picking up trash only to picking up trash and mowing uh, vacant home sites uh, that the builder would pre, pre-build the lots. And uh, I I hit a piece of concrete with my tractor and my tractor rim dented. And I I just took the tractor rim off, took it to my grandmother's house because she had an air compressor. And I was beating that rim out with my sledgehammer. And my grandmother said, why don't you just go get a job like everybody else and stop worrying about all this? And uh, I, I uh, didn't process it a whole lot, but I just kept beating the rim out, got it inflated, took it back to the job and finished up. But uh, everyone in my family is basically just go to work and work for someone else.
0: so philip one of the things that i find most fascinating about you and most endearing about you is your humility your willingness to learn and your tenacious work ethic all of those things and then caring about other people but you you know it's interesting that you you know put people at such a high Priority, and that was exactly what happened when I first met you. We'll talk about that later on, but I want to learn a little bit more about this insatiable curiosity and um, commitment to learning. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Okay, um,
1: I was not a very uh, did not have a big appetite for learning in school or after school, for that matter. I started my business when I was 29. And, uh, you know, there was the, the boom in the economy it, from 2003, when we started doing our thing um, to, we went through the rise of 2006, 2007. And then 2008, you know, well, well, we all felt like geniuses in 2006, because, you know, money was just flowing freely. And, you know, everybody's a genius when they're making a ton of money. And then in 2008 came, and I realized I wasn't the the genius I was riding away. Um, so I just started, I took a Dave Ramsey class, um, that my pastor had recommended. He says, well, you have plenty of free time right now because we were down to, I don't know, one and a half people at that point. And, uh, I took it and then he recommended a book, uh, a John Maxwell book. And, and he actually recommended thirteen books in his old series, and and I just started reading those books because I had plenty of time on my hands, and it, I just started learning, and I just thought, and I would read one chapter or one paragraph and just put it down and think, I have no idea what I'm doing, <laughs> and I just learned more and more, um, and today I still think that there's 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 just so much we don't we haven't even touch the tip of the iceberg with, with what there is to know in business. It's just so crazy. But that I just, one book, it was like a chain smoker. I chain chain read through all those books and then continued to read and started passing them out to my friends. I'm like, you got to read this. (laughs) (laughs) The biggest one was um, the law of the lid. And I was, I was the lid on the organization for sure because I had no leadership training whatsoever. And, um, So that was just a big search. It was like kind of like a treasure hunt trying to find the next, next piece of learning.
0: So I got to interject one little quick story about that. The the chain smoker being a chain, you are, you've always been a very fit and health conscious guy. So I just think that that's a funny analogy (laughs) that the chain book reader, um, but one of my favorite things that you ever sent to me was a text with a picture and you had expanded PNTL from Charlotte. You were in other cities. And at this point you were establishing a beachhead out in the Raleigh area. And you had some, um, you had some rental units that, that storage units, and you were in a gravel parking lot with your pickup. You had folding chairs behind the pickup in the gravel parking lot, and you had taken your big screen TV from your bedroom, (laughs) and you were playing some uh, teaching series for all your workers out there. And and you said that to me, and you said, man, this is so cool. And I thought, (laughs) look at you. You know, you are a ripple maker. You are taking that love for learning and taking it to your frontline, your workers who are out there in the field mucking around in the dirt and in the the mud when it's muddy, putting up silt fences. And I just think that is a a beautiful picture of what you do. And so thank you. I just want to say thank you for that.
1: Um, It was a lot of fun. It was cold that morning. I remember that. (laughs) but I, I just, I don't, I don't think it's, I think everybody should, I don't like using the word fair. I don't like hearing the word fair, but I don't think it's fair that some people have access to, to information that others don't. Um, I think everyone should have to work for it, but it was a lot of fun taking that and showing those guys that class because they, they learned so much. Um, I've, I've been gone from PNTL now since uh, about five months, six months, and I still get texts not quite weekly from some something someone of the 100 plus people hey i paid off my car this week or hey we're paying off our house next week or and it just it just lets me know that there was a difference between because i mean there's a ton of guys out there putting up silk fences today um but but i don't know if a ton of them are getting you know texts saying hey i I paid this off and they're thinking of me and and uh really proud of themselves and it's just gosh it's so
2: wonderful it's amazing how you how you shared the things that you were reading about and learning, right? So it's, I wouldn't say easy, but it's fairly common, especially with business owners to consume a ton of content, right? Podcasts, books, whatever. But then taking it and applying it to a business is a completely different art. So when you started really getting into reading the those books and doing the, the chain reading, how did you then take that and first start applying it inside the business? Was it from you personally in a business standpoint, was it doing the stuff you were talking about that Gary brought up of like teaching the other people in the company? What did that look like of the actual application? Well, I had a really awesome
1: speaker say something that just really seared into my mind. <clears throat> and I've got it typed above my desk at home. And it says, your purpose is not what you do. It's what happens in others when you do what you do. And it just, it just seared into my mind. Um, you know, I'm, um, certainly nothing special, but that, that really stood out to me and, and I'm by far not the smartest in our company. Um, but what I did was I got some really amazing people and then I helped bring value to them in areas where they're weak as they did for me. Um, and, the first step I did was I just said, you know what, I'm going to buy lunch for 10 people and bring them into the office, leave them on the clock and watch one hour of uh, that financial peace class and, and just test it out. And they loved it. And then they sat in there and talked. I had to run them out. Um, And they were like, no one's ever done this for us before. Um, And it's, such a cascading effect, you know, um, and you can see it on their, their spouse's faces at the company parties, you know, uh, and, and the stuff that they learn and they're like, no one's ever taught us about insurance. No one's ever taught us about these things. And I, I didn't teach them, but I was able to bring them in and press play and buy a pizza
0: <laughs> and wings. <laughs> <Yep. laughs> Sometimes that's all it takes being able to press play and buy a pizza and right. you know sometimes it's just t- it takes press play <laughs> right <laughs> usually wings
2: though but yes <laughs> um so Philip I want to want to get back to the timeline you were talking about so you you were riding the wave of 06 had that realization in 08 of oh I'm I don't know what I'm doing I'm just riding this wave talk about the the struggles of building the business after 08, right? So what did that recovery look like for you?
1: Well, it was pretty, pretty humble means. Um, There were far more uh, people that were willing to be employed um, and had much different outlooks than than today. Um, But it was still a struggle because I had not made a name for myself, Um, you know, but I learned, I had a friend from church contact me and he says, Hey, these home builders are great. He says, but, uh, he says, have you thought about doing any commercial work? And he actually came over and he, he's he sat down and taught me how to do bidding on websites, which I had no idea. I knew big jobs happened. I had no idea how they occurred, where you found them or anything. And his wife proceeded to make me two six inch thick binders of rules and regulations for all the DOT specs and everything like that. And he came over every night after work. He would work 12 hours at Blythe development and then he would come over to my house and teach me how to bid and estimate. And um, I, uh, one of my, my first or second estimate was so bad that the chief estimator at one of the contractors called me and says, this is a horrible looking estimate. <laughs> and I said, can I buy you a donut and teach, get you to teach me how to make a better looking one? And he's like, sure. <laughs> so, but anyhow, uh, it was a rough go, but um, friends helped me a good bit. Um, and also another couple of guys that had started in business at the same time as me, a landscaper and a concrete guy. You know, I, I kind of was buddies with those guys and they seemed to always come in and boost me up when I was dropping down. They, if I said, hey, I don't have enough people for this job, half the time they wouldn't even charge me. They would just come in and help me. They're just such good dudes. Um, a lot of the success isn't, isn't mine. It, it came from so many other places.
2: Well, and, and Gary had mentioned this earlier, but all, the humility of that guy calls you up, basically tells you how terrible you did with that estimate. <laughs> (laughs) And your response is not to put up a wall or defend yourself. It's, hey, I can learn from you. Can I get you a donut and you can teach me? That open mindset and humility, I think, is invaluable in business, right? Because so many people carry an ego and they don't ever want to surround themselves with anybody smarter than themselves. And they want to feel like they're the ones that know the most. So that has to have come a long way for you.
1: Yeah. And and well, being hungry helped a lot because <laughs> we had um, 2006, we had upgraded our home and things like that. And 2008, Tracy and I decided, hey, are we going to try to hang on to this nice home? But we decided to downsize our home about 60 percent and uh, try to build the business. And um, so we, you know, we had burned the boats and had to
2: had to win. <laughs> Gary, I want to flip this on you for a second. You had said at the beginning, the the fact that you got the chance to kind of walk beside Philip for the last four years. Talk, talk to us a little bit about how you two
0: met. So <clears throat> I will never, ever forget lunch at Brick Tops with you, Philip. <laughs> and it was because our mutual friend, Mike, Introduced us because I was coaching Mike at the time, and I I had you tell me about your your business and this and that, and man, I could tell like you had a, a teachable spirit, like you were very teachable and humble, which is what drew me to you immediately. And I needed the work, man. I mean, I was I was coaching full time, and I I needed another uh, client. And you told me the story. You you just turned down a good a good seven figure offer. It was about a fifth of what you took <laughs> lately, and um, you 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 couldn't take it. And I said, "Well, why why didn't you take it?" And you said, "Well, because I'm afraid my culture is going to change." And I said, "Well, I guarantee you, your culture is going to change by." anybody else taking the reins unless they have the exact DNA of you. So tell me about what about your culture matters to you. And, and you, you had a deep love for all of your people, your frontline guys in particular. And you said, I, you know, I pay above rate, I provide benefits that nobody else does. We do, you know, all kinds of things. And I said, well, I guarantee those, are going to change if somebody buys you because they're going to drop all of that to the bottom line. You know, it's not that they don't care. They just don't care as much as you do. And so I said, are you running to something or you running from something? You said, Hmm, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I said, well, what are you running to? What are you going to do? And you said, well, I'd love to build a tiny house community for the working poor and you, you kind of started talking about that. And I thought, man, that's a really cool thing, but um, that's not going to put any money in your pocket. And the amount of money that you were going to take for the sale was good, but it wouldn't take you through the rest of your life. You've, you're going to live till probably 120, like Moses, the way you take care <laughs> of yourself. So you're going to need a lot more money than that. <clears throat> and so I said, I, I don't, I'm not hearing that you're running to anything. I'm, I'm hearing you might be running from something. What are you running from? And you're talking, you know, like, because Dave Ramsey has made such an impact, you know, you didn't like debt. Um, You know, your commercial operation in particular, your hydro seeders and all that are really expensive. And you're having to carry some debt on that. And it just wasn't as fun. And um, so I remember saying, well, um, and you said, well, would you coach me? and i said no as long as you are taking offers and which was hard because i really wanted to but i knew that we couldn't start something that we couldn't finish and it you know people would feel like you're one foot's in the boat one foot's on the canoe and i just knew it wouldn't end well so i said no and i thought that was the end of it and then i don't know it was probably 3 months later you called me and said i just turned down another offer I'm ready to roll. Let's, I can't leave. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the beginning, man. I mean, that was the beginning of a really fun ride with you that started with a two-day offsite up at Mike's uh, Mountain House that he let us use. And that was a, a foundational moment. I mean, Richard Morell was still on loan. He was on a trial <laughs> basis. And after the first day, I said, you better hire that guy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, Philip, what made you want to I have like nine questions from Gary's story I want to ask. So um, (laughs) let's go with this first. What made you want to seek out a coach in the first place? I knew there were
1: levels above where I wanted to get to, and I knew that I didn't have um, either the thought process to get there or I didn't have the the margin to have thought process to get there. And I I knew that, you know, every sport has coaches. Um, You know, there's there's not a sport that doesn't have a coach. Um, Gosh, they even have labor and delivery coaches. Um, <laughs> <That's> so <laughs> I, w- why, why would a business person as responsible for, for people's one third of their lives, um, not have a coach also, that's what I thought, I, you know, and I knew I just
2: couldn't get there without a, another brain. Yeah. And what were you looking for in a coach, right? Whether it was Gary or anybody else, what were some of the things that you thought you needed in a coach that would help you get to that next level? Energy. I had no
1: idea during our first offsite, you know, I was getting to know Gary and um, I wake up early. Apparently Gary does too. I didn't know that our offsites would begin with green tea and jump ropes, but uh, (laughs) you you go out there and you see Gary out there sweating it out with some green tea and jump ropes. Uh, Yeah. And I needed someone with good chemistry that could help, you know, I don't need, you know, a great coach will help and be able to know how to spark what you need inside you, not just give you ideas. And that's exactly what Gary does. He'll, he'll get us over a hurdle if we need, but uh, he really helped ex- spark and ignite things um, and just has great timing and gosh, we had a great team. And I think, I think he's actually the one that led me to my CFO, I believe.
0: Yes, in, in a roundabout way, <clears throat> that, that is true. Um, you guys actually had one of the most high-functioning teams that I've gotten to work with. Now, um, you had some team members that had to leave at, at along the way. They were good people, and you agonized over all those, but they were probably just in the wrong seat at the time. And then you added some additional folks to it. Um, But one thing that I I would like to go on a little bit further was this was probably one of the most foundational moments of that two day, that first two day. And we didn't do any other two days after that. We did single days. Um, But that first two day, we talked, I think we talked a little bit about Thrive Wither, but we went into function accountability chart. And we went and we listed And this was probably one hour of the total of 16 hours that we spent working through stuff together. Um, But I said, hey, list all of the major functions of the business from, you know, HR, IT, accounts payable, accounts receivable, operations, all those things. And kind of the titles, but the functions. And then who has the ultimate say, like, where does the buck stop? And I'll never forget, and I don't remember if it was a 14 things. I think it was a, around there. But if I remember right, you had your name by about 11 of them. <laughs> and I was <laughs> like, well, no wonder you're worn out. You know, no wonder it's not any fun.
2: And to be fair, that's very normal in small to mid-sized yes.
0: right? that's right? That's not uncommon. That That's exactly right. Because you had to do that when you started it, you know, like, and you're probably most proficient on a lot of those things, but I remember saying, all right, Philip, circle the ones that make you come alive. And you circled three, you circled inventing stuff. Cause you're really, really good. I want to go down that rabbit t- trail a little bit more because that really makes you come alive. You love coaching and working with your team as depicted by that story where you take the tv out of your bedroom put it in the back of your truck and and <laughs> you're, you're you're hitting play for your guys in Raleigh and and the third thing was you love selling stuff like you like working with key client key clients key customers cuz you're people person you know but those were the three things and everything else was kind of you're good at it but they were kind of draining your tank. So we did some horse trading. And, and Richard actually said, hey, I would love to do a few of those. And before we knew it, it did not all happen overnight. But before we knew it, a lot of those things were off of your plate. And less than six months later, about this time of the year, it was right before Christmas, you said, man, Gary, I can't wait to go to work every day. Which was a massive, massive shift, because you were you were like Sisyphus pushing up the boulder every day and it was wearing you out and that that was probably one of the most joy filled moments I've ever had in working with anybody, but was hearing that I can't wait to go to work every day
1: <laughs>
0: so, so one so- other thing I got to bring up is um. <clears throat> You, you talk about me jumping rope. Well, you guys were out exercising too. and um, and I couldn't sleep that night because I was in the guest house um, next door and um, there was uh, the air conditioner was not working and it was hot. <laughs> so I was I am not an early morning guy. you're more of an early morning guy. But one of the things that we always did that you infused a lot of fun into our offsites, you like having competitions and you like games. <clears throat> so when Spike Ball was discovered by Philip Lanier, <laughs> that became a staple for <laughs> break time, <laughs> Spike Ball. How did yeah. you get into those kind of things? Like what, what about fun competition and that playfulness? When did that start for you? Oh
1: gosh, um, I think it started with my my son because um, I don't know we're just we're just goofy, you know. When I can remember one time we were I parked in the parking lot of the grocery store, and I started we were, me and my son started walking into the grocery store, and I sped up a little bit, and then this little guy speeds up, and then so I sped up. And what do you know, we are just barreling, just almost smashed into the sliding doors in the grocery store. And we just brought that to the company. Um, I mean, everyone can tell when my eyes glaze over. It's about probably seven minutes into about anything. And, and um, somebody will say, hey, are you ready? And then we'll just go out and start playing spike ball. And it, it started out pretty innocent and just kind of knocking it across the net. And then Boy, it really got into some heated matches. <laughs> and, uh yeah, one of the coolest things we did one time was um, I told a, a friend of mine that we were having soccer matches about every, every other month, uh, just company soccer matches, and darn near the whole company showed up for it. So another company actually <clears throat> accepted my challenge to a match, and we had this all-out <laughs> soccer match war, which was really, really awesome. It was a good experience.
0: <laughs> yeah th- there were some injuries from that too if i remember right and you guys were also playing with somebody on the other team that had been a professional soccer player <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. And we tied
1: so i feel like we did pretty well. Yeah you did. <laughs> um so but yeah competition's just always been in there whether it's uh just silly or or fun you know it's it's just been a big part of it and Everybody on our team, like attracts like, so we have everyone, even even the the bookkeeper, the controller, all of them came out and played spike ball, and they were just as vicious. It's crazy.
2: <laughs> yeah. How did that carry? How did that carry into just the culture of the business as a whole, right? Because it's one thing to go and do that and play, but you said you and your son brought that to the company. How did that? Ripple through the the company as a whole. It's hard to hide energy. It is just
1: so hard to contain and hide energy. And and the people loved it because we were we were playing together. I mean, players on teams bond, and and what I was looking for was a bond, and to get out of a meeting. So uh, and and players just bond, and it it just just naturally worked. Um, and the the people that that weren't bondable. Really, kind of flushed out of the system because um, there were some amazing workers that just weren't great, bondable, culture people. And um, I would, I would keep a, a you know, a, a B producer that has an A attitude, and and it just really helped us outperform and build a culture that no one wants to let the other one down. And that's even if they were a typical, which we don't really have any bees, but it. It would make a not quite you can have a higher performer that doesn't perform as well in a in a not so great culture environment.
2: Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, Gary, you've alluded a couple of times to inventions being innovative, all that. So take us down that that rabbit hole before we get
0: into more of the, uh, the exit itself. So let's let's talk about inventing stuff, you know. Um, many times we would have to pick, all right, are we going to pick on between eco-friendly, innovative things in the silk fencing world? or Are we going to pick between that? or Are we going to look at geographic expansion? Are we going to look at, at different services offered versus inventing new products, et cetera? So, Let's talk a little bit about what you did early on when you saw how everybody else was doing silt fences and then how you guys were doing it. So let's start with some of those things and then some of the other stuff that you like tinkering with and that you started playing with that found a better way to do things, Philip.
1: Okay, so coming out of the Great Recession, the um, I, I was the, the crew leader. Um, as we were building the company and and estimator and and everything <laughs> and um, you know I so we were out there and you you dig the trench with the trencher and then you take this post driver which looks like a medieval torture tool and you pound the post in um, and I'm I'm pretty sure that a uh, attendant doctor must have been the one that invented that machine. <laughs> um, so he could get plenty of surgeries going. Um, and and I just thought, my gosh, there has got to be a better way. So I started looking it up and someone had invented a, a, a vibratory plow, but they never could get it off the ground. They could never make it work. And one of my buddies that, that ran this concrete company, I took it to him and I said, I can't figure this out. And uh, he uh, he talks in a high pitched voice. He said, Philip. This is how you fix it. And he and I together fixed this thing and figured out how to put tension on it to make the darn thing work. And I bet you six or eight years went by without anyone else using this machine. And uh, we just were able to just slice the silt fence in the ground and it got rid of so many um, wasted hours of work. But then I, uh, there was this Driving the post in the ground with just brute force just seemed so crazy to me. And so a few months later, I I got a a hydraulic hammer uh, or a hydraulic uh, concrete break. I was like, if it can break concrete, surely it can put a piece of metal in the ground. (laughs) And uh, I was like, 3,200 strikes per minute at 60 pounds of pressure. This will do it. And I mean, it drove the post in the ground in less than three seconds, all the way six feet down or five feet down. And so I, uh, what looked like a hangman off of the hangman game, I built this, welded up this hangman thing and hung the the hammer off of it. And uh, I did it pretty crudely. And then some friends came over and helped me make it look a lot better and be a lot safer. Uh, but we were able to hammer in posts. Well, one man could drive one, we could drive, you know, 15 in the same amount of time. And, and then they were all happy at the end of the day and could still go play soccer <laughs> or football. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really good. Also talk about some of the eco-friendly things that you were playing with. Uh, because, Silt fence. Let's talk about what silt fence is and what it does and why it's important, because a lot of people may not know that. Talk about what, you know, describe it to a listener so that if they're driving down the road and they see silt fence, what it is and what it does.
1: So silt fence is a very misunderstood uh, item but it, it's, it's also really cool if you use it how it's designed. So what it is, is it's a, a porous um, polypropylene f- fabric and it, it um, I cannot remember the sieve rate, it's different for different states, but uh, when you install a silt fence held up by the posts, it's not supposed to hold back the water, it's not supposed to hold back the dirt. What it's supposed to do is in an event of a rain event, uh, For one quarter of an acre, you can have one silt fence um, with less than 10 feet of fall. And it's designed to let the water uh, approach the fence and then slowly seep through at a sieve rate of, I can't remember what the rate is. Um, But, uh, and it's supposed to let the water slowly leach through and it's only designed to be there for three months. Now you see them sitting there for six months and a year and three years. Um, but they're only designed for three months of lifespan. So what does it look like? What does it do, et cetera? Okay. So what, what it does is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a typically black fence and it's uh, three feet tall and it's trenched in a foot in the ground to, for stabilization. And, and what it does is it, you know, it, it slows the water down so that it cleans the water slowly as the water filters through and drains into our streets streams and creeks there you go
2: so philip i want to i want to pivot a little bit because i want to make sure we hit on the process of exiting a company right that's something that so many of our listeners aspire to eventually be able to do but also don't know where to start so you had turned down a couple uh, sale opportunities called gary up and said all right, let's do this. What were the things inside the company that needed to change for you to be able to have the sale or the exit that you felt comfortable being able to do?
1: Well, after I decided to walk away from, from those initial attempts um, that were I was approached, we, I just 100% decided against an exit. Um, and actually, when I was approached again last year, i um had not been building the company for an exit. um I was approached again and turned away i think three offers uh, by the same company. Apparently, they were competing with us and and uh, realized the value of the company. So I never actually tried to build it to sell, and I was open with the I was open with the executive leadership team, you know my my small my small team i was I was open with them the whole time. I said, hey, this is what's going on. You know, this is what people are saying. And they're like, well, tell us what you want to do. We can march with our flags up or we can um, help you figure out what we need to do to to get the books right. And, uh, you know, I I walked away from three offers from the same company, I believe, three, two or three. So we never actually prepared the company for sale. If we had, we would have done it differently and done a few more things different.
2: What well, what are some of those things in, in hindsight? And obviously you didn't do it because you weren't building it to sell, but what are some of those things that, that you would have done differently if you had an exit in mind?
1: From a, from a higher level, what we would have done was added a parent company and pulled the people that I really wanted to retain into the parent company and let it operate PNTL. And that that's one of the biggest changes I would have made. Um, Another change I would have made is, um, you know, I still had some, you know, personal expenses in the company and I would have made that a lot cleaner. Um, It's it's just hard not to. It's hard to pull out the right card when you're going to buy something from a store (laughs) sometimes. Uh, What else would I have done? I would have. um, Probably written in more things so that my uh, employees and my leadership team would have had an even better experience with the new team by writing in things that they would need, writing them contracts.
2: Makes sense. On the flip side, what were the things that you did do, right? You got approached, you turned them down multiple times, decided to end up making an exit. What were the things you had to do um, in order to actually make that exit happen? One of the things is we,
1: we um, had multiple conversations with our top-notch accountants and um, actually got to speak with the, the owner of the accounting firm. And he, he advised us, he turned us on to friends, you know, in a, you know wisdom comes from multiple advisors, you know, that's a, that's a biblical thing. And, and so we reached out to many people. I knew a guy that owns a brokerage firm, a business brokerage firm and and he advised us a good bit um talked to some attorneys and 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 really came up with a good plan and it and they the attorneys told us here's what they are going to do so we knew every step and richard to his credit knew every step they were going to make before they ever made it and i was like how do you know this and he says cuz i used to work at a big bank <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah it's funny your quote wisdom comes from a multiple or a multiple of advisors you've taken that to heart you didn't just give it lip service you've lived that philip and you have seen the results of that i mean the without getting into the specific numbers you almost quintupled the value of that business, you increased the top line by threefold, a little over. You increased or close to it. You increased the bottom line by fourfold. You had a great team around you that still loves you to this day, that still texts you. <laughs> and that's not just the executive team, that's the front line which says a lot, um, that goes back to what you said at the beginning of this, like, what would you want somebody to say about you? Well, they're saying that about you because of how you live. And and uh, that's why um, you're on this uh, podcast, because that story resonates with so many people. And And to be able to say, for somebody out there listening, saying, well, I don't know this or that, well, guess what? None of us do, you know, none of us have the idyllic uh, pedigree. And if you do, they aren't the ones that are out there grinding it typically like what Philip Lanier and his team have done. Uh, so anyway, just I, I just had to do another tip of the hat to you and, and to to Tracy, how you've honored that. One other thing that I would like to ask. Because you've had your son in the the company, and you've also had Tracy, who has been by your side. Uh, she was out there, uh, I think at one point you had a street sweeper, and I think the two of you guys were street uh, sweeping parking lots and stuff in the street sweeper on a Friday night. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so- <laughs> talk about those dynamics, and how did you make that work? Because not everybody can do that. Well, my wife is really,
1: really special. Gosh, she might be the keys to the whole thing, to be honest, because like uh, she was working for 10 bucks an hour at this insurance company. And then she would come help me pick up the sandwich bags and shingle wrappers on the job sites. Um, And then I just. One day I had a superintendent ask me to sweep the street and I'm like, with what? And he said, uh, these brooms. And I was like. Okay. All right. So we started sweeping the streets with brooms. Here's me and Tracy side by side with these big shop brooms, sweeping (laughs) dirt out of the street. And I was looking down the street and I was like, this is going to be a minute. You know, I'm getting paid. It's great, but this is going to take a minute. And then another superintendent called and said, hey, I need my streets swept. This is about year one and a half. So I go to the bank and I I ask Harvey, I say, hey, I I need a loan. I need to buy a street sweeper. How much is it? A hundred thousand. And he said, he said, I love you. And I love every guy from Fort Mill that tries to start a business, but you, you don't even have any numbers. (laughs) We, I cannot loan you money. So I go and I find the next best street sweeper, which is out of Seattle, Washington. And it's this gigantic street sweeper for $30,000 and it's it's the tires in the front are solid and the truck has been sitting so long that they're egg shaped, the front tires. So here me and Tracy are, I mean, and it's, you almost hit your head as we go from subdivision to subdivision on Friday nights, because that's when everybody wanted it clean for the sales on the, on the weekend. And, uh, you know, it, it was a really good time when both tires were on the same up, you know, because sometimes <laughs> they were both opposite. <laughs> you know? And we did that. That was our Friday nights. And Friday night was also the night when we got to eat out. We would go to get our Ryland check and go to show Mars. And then we would go ride in the street sweeper and, and <laughs> beat the show Mars out of us, you know. <laughs> Wild times. We did eventually upgrade to another street sweeper, but uh, that was a crazy, but Tracy was with me every Friday night. It was, she's been with me the whole way when we were mowing the house lots, I was the guy up on the tractor and she, she had a, one of those huge 40 cc weed eaters with the double straps and she would weed eat around all of the little sewer taps at the street for 12 hours a day. She ended up quitting her job so she could help me and she weed eated. I mean, we probably mowed, I don't know, 20 acres a week for all of the 40 subdivisions Ryland Homes had at the time and uh, she she weeded everyone six days a week, six days a week. She's she's pretty much the champion
0: in the story on that. If anybody ever meets Tracy Lanier, uh, she she is like um, energy unleashed. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. If you if I. At the kitchen sink, if I spray her with the spray nozzle, she's going to go get a bucket out of the barn and dump a bucket on me. She is competitive
2: to the T. <laughs> <laughs> that tends to be a, a theme through this conversation, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, and,
1: and I I usually don't go to the after I shoot her with the water hose and she gets me with the bucket and we're done. I I don't I don't up it because I know she will.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so. Philip, now that you have exited, right, you were running this for so long, for years when you didn't even realize it was a company, then rode the wave of, of 05 to 07, had the recession, rebuilt from there, kept it going. You've gone through so much in this company. And now you've had that exit after over 19 years. What What's next for you? What does it look like now?
1: So... so... The biggest, loneliest time for me in business, which will help answer the question, is when I was the, um, the guy pulling all the weight and I didn't know what I know today. And I feel like there's other people out there that are in the same place. Um, and what I would really like to do is come along somebody this going through what I went through and my, my family was having health problems, my, you know, and then the the weight of the business and the weight of the, the, the bust and boom cycle of you go get a contract, then you go do the contract. Well then you don't have any work as soon as that contract's done because you were working on the work. So I really want to come along beside somebody and either acquire a small company and, or, or help them through that, um, I'm not exactly sure yet, but somewhere probably along there because I know how it feels. And if I can help somebody else get over that hurdle, um, it would feel great.
2: Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense, especially with what you guys were talking about earlier, right, with the things that make you come alive to now be able to go and help other people through what you've already worked your way through and going back to the teaching outside or out of the back of your truck it's like you're just doing the same thing you're learning stuff and then you're applying it to help others improve their life and this is right on the same track
1: yeah and i have a funny story there's probably a lot of stories but i just thought i would just plug in one little one friend of mine that owned the small concrete company billy that helped me so much he uh he uh he said philip everything you touch turns to gold and I went home that night and I told Tracy, I said, he said, everything I touch turns to gold. Boy, it doesn't feel like that. And then um, a few days later, I was out mowing grass in the backyard. And I called Billy and I said, you remember how you said everything I touch turns to gold? And he said, yeah, it does. I said, well, there's six golden hornets in my backyard right now because they all stung me at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh, that was a
0: funny story. <laughs> well, thank goodness you weren't allergic to him, because the right. world is a better place with you in it than not. And uh. here's what I will also say, Philip, whoever is listening to this or whoever is your next person that says, hey, Philip, boy, I listened to that or I know your story. Boy, I, I sure could use some help. They are so fortunate to have you come alongside them because you're a master learner, but you're also a master teacher. And uh that is the truth. Well, thank you. Yeah. One of the times you didn't ask this question, but I'll just
1: toss it in here. Um if do we have time? Yeah, of yeah. course. Okay. Is um when I realized holy cow we have something here I think it was 2018 19 and I would go to work and then the the team you know Richard Christina uh, Chad Phil um I will go to work and they'll bring me into the meeting room and say look what we've done look what we look what we did while you were gone yesterday and I felt myself always having to catch up to those guys because they were always pulling ahead of me. So I found myself trying to always stay ahead of them (laughs) because they were always pulling ahead. And I, I had to have energy just to stay ahead of that team. They're, they're phenomenal, phenomenal people.
2: Well, and that shows just how much you took yourself out of being the keystone in the company, right? To have everything flow through you at first. And then you get to a point where you show up and, they pull you in to show what they've done without you, or or at least on their own in some capacity. That's immense, right? That that yeah. transition.
1: Another cool thing is, um, gosh, about the same time we were having a field manager meeting, and you know, you're doing the same stuff. How many new starts did you do? How many? And then I said, "Hey, can we talk about something besides?" silt fence for a minute and so the field managers are looking at me saying oh gosh what's he going to say now (laughs) and i'm like is there anything that happens besides silt fence on these jobs as do, do any of the superintendents or uh construction managers talk to you and one of the guys piped up he's still with the company here um and he he uh been there for a number of years now he says yeah um I had uh, such-and-such superintendent pull me to the side and say her dad died last week. And then Mm -hmm. she proceeded to talk to me for about an hour about her dad. Wow. And then all of a sudden, John pipes up and says, I actually had uh, Ronnie tell me that his dad has cancer. And we've talked about it, and the guy teared up. And we talked Mm -hmm. about it for an hour or two. And then we ended up doing the entire afternoon – about everything that the superintendents were confiding in them about. And, and I thought, man, we don't just have silk fence supervisors here. Everybody's putting up silk fence, you know? I mean, you can buy silk fence at Home Depot. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we just really have something special to where they'll talk to you about those kinds of things instead of how many feet did you get or, or uh, your bills late, or something like that. I mean, we just really have something special with our field managers.
0: Well, it starts at the top. Management always sets the tone, Philip. And I'm not saying that to build you up or to blow smoke up your skirt. It's not that at all. The truth is water rolls downhill and it starts from the top. And um, your care for others, your care for stuff that matters more than the bottom line the top line sales the efficiency the throughput the all of those metrics which those all matter but not not as much as people and um and you're a great example and that's why i get choked up when i think about you and what kind of a special leader you are so thank you for telling that story cuz that really at the end of the day that's the stuff that matters. It's not about how big did you get your company? How much did you sell up for all of that? That doesn't really matter. It's, it's, it's good, but it's not the most important.
1: I agree. I agree. Cause it's, you know, if you think your company's big at 10 million or 20 million, there's a guy that's doing 50 and there's a guy doing a hundred. There's a guy that's doing a hundred billion. There's guys doing, you know, 10 yeah. trillion. So um, but yeah, I agree.
2: Yeah. And that goes back to what you have, uh, above your computer, right? Philip, with what you said of your purpose is not what you do. It's what happens to others when you do what you do. That's what right. It, right. It's you doing what you do has then rippled through. And now you've got these field managers that are making a difference in people's lives, not just doing their job. Right. Yeah, that's right. a huge testament to you and your leadership. So, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This has been an amazing conversation. Any any final thoughts? Anything else you want to leave us with? No, I'm just uh, proud to to be on
1: this podcast with you guys. I think this is this is really awesome, and I I grow every time I speak to you two.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, we do as well. Thank you, Philip.
1: We appreciate it. All right. Thank thanks. Philip. Have a good one.